Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Life's not fair. Is it, my little friend? While some are born to feast, others spend their lives in the dark. Begging for scraps. In production circles, John Favreau's The Lion King has become one of the most discussed films of the year. Its innovative virtual production process involved virtual reality, a real-time gaming engine, and live-action production techniques to craft a photoreal CG retelling of Disney's 1994 animated classic. Today we'll do a deep dive into the making of the movie with visual effects supervisor Rob Legato, visual effects supervisor Adam Valdez of Technicolor-owned visual effects house MPC, and virtual production supervisor Ben Grossman, co-founder of technology innovator Magnopus. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Today's trio of guests are all Academy Award winners. Rob Legato earned Oscars for James Cameron's Titanic, Martin Scorsese's Hugo, and Favreau's The Jungle Book. Valdez also won an Oscar for The Jungle Book, and Grossman won an Oscar alongside Legato on Hugo. So I'm here with Rob and Ben at Magnopus's Los Angeles offices, and we have Adam calling in from London, where MPC is headquartered. Thank you all for joining us. No, oh, thank you. Thank you. Rob, would you tell us about the genesis of the project and how it was made? I think the genesis started when we were finishing Jungle Book and it was turning out quite well and the whole idea that you could actually remake these uh, classics in a new photographic style, a live action style. So that's where I think the idea came from. And John, I I may have this wrong, may have approached Disney or Disney approached him about the idea of doing The Lion King as the next film to take advantage of this technology. So it was towards the end of that. And John uh, and Adam, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, started to talk to us about the concept of doing it at the very tail end of Jungle Book. And when we sort of did a uh, a post-mortem on it about what we could do better and all that, it had a very specific reason for the postmortem is to figure out what's the best next best way of doing this uh, project which then uh, came up with the whole uh, VR aspect of, uh, of making a movie making it even more live action oriented and like that 
Okay. Well, why don't we dive right in? Why don't you explain what you developed okay. for the um, Well, in the, uh, just a little bit of history on, the, on Jungle Book. It was pretty much the same technology that we developed when we were doing uh, Avatar and other projects, where it's virtual cinematography, except you only have a portal to the virtual world. You don't walk around in it and, and get yourself immersed in a, in a 3D version of the landscape. So for the uninitiated, what you did with the Jungle Book was you basically created the movie on a blue screen stage using live action production techniques. Yes, and that's only a portion of it. The rest of the portion of what's beyond the blue screen is the virtual world that we created with the virtual sets and animals and all, all the various things. So whatever, you know, the, the kid is in half the shots and the other half is pretty much almost identical to Lion King in terms of that was total recreations of landscapes and animals and things like that. So at the end of the movie, we were sort of experimenting with this new technology and the Vive headset was just starting to become available, like literally just becoming available. So when we did this post-mortem, uh, the idea is that how would we improve what we did before and then be able to actually film uh, Lion King with the benefit and aid of VR. So we decided we'd scrap what we had uh, created before, which is part of what we did Avatar with, which is Motion Builder and then a little sort of game engine thing on top of it. Uh, this was a total game engine starting from scratch. That's where Ben comes in and Adam in terms of converting a game engine into a very useful production tool. But what it did allow us to do is be able to have five or six people in VR at any one time location scouting, talking about where the animals are going to start and stop, all the blocking, the the actor blocking of that, and figure out what the action is and what's the best vantage point to shoot it from. And we were able to hop from location to location, literally miles and miles of fabricated Africa that uh, uh, James Chinlin uh, created. And so that and, was... And again, for the uninitiated, and you're doing this on a stage. It's doing it on a stage. It could be anywhere. And it could be in you an have, office. And you have virtual cameras. You have a crew as if it was a live action Yeah, the production. next step after that, then then we created the whole idea to because we're trying to make it look like it's a live action film, so we want to use all live action techniques, including how do you come up with a camera angle? How do you come up with a, a take that you like with the concert of a dolly grip, a focus puller, and a camera operator, maybe a crane operator? And that collaboration with three or four live people creates a live looking shot that you must do five, six, seven, eight takes and find the one that, that has the magic that you want to put in the movie. And that thing time after time after time creates from cut to cut to cut what looks like a live action film because that's how all live action films are created. And But it was on a stage and we built a dolly that has a mass to it, so it takes a little bit of energy to break the inertia to get it moving and a little bit of energy to stop it. It's not quite as exacting as what a computer does where you, it starts on a frame and ends on a frame. This is a little sloppier, but it's more what we're used to seeing when we see a live-action film. And then every once in a while when all things work, the the action that's in front of the camera, the lighting, the dolly move, the pan and tilt, the, the dialogue and all that stuff works and sometimes it only works once or twice and might take three or four more takes to get it to work again which kind of just like movies are made created this life that we then gave over to the editor and john and they would pick just like it would have been a live action film from dailies from this shot multiple times with multiple camera angles and multiple choices of when everything's clicked to edit a movie out of it and then it went to MPC to now do all the perfection that you see in the movie the the photorealism and the hair and the you know all the stuff that that you, Adam should should really speak of uh, but the 
initial what makes it feel like a live choice that you respond to what you're seeing. It's one of the great things about VR is that you see something and you immediately instinctively alter the way you move, the way you pan and tilt uh, when the camera pushes in because you're getting live input. It's not intellectualized thought. It is something you just feel. And when you have somebody like Caleb, who's been doing this for 40 or 50 years. Caleb Deschanel, the cinematographer. Yes, Caleb Deschanel, the famous DP. um, When you rely on that many years of instinct to say, oh, now that we're moving here, I want to change focus to this and change lighting and all the various things that just come to you when you have input coming your direction makes it now accessible for a live action cinematographer to contribute mightily to the quality of the film. So let's talk about how you created this process. Um, Tell us about the workflow. Uh, the initial workflow just on the creative end was creating the tools like a dolly, a, a crane. We actually had a physical crane there for Steadicam shots. We did Steadicam shots and things like that. So creatively, we it went from the art department uh, through Andy Jones, put in the animals. After Andy Jones being the animation yeah, supervisor. Andy Jones being the animation supervisor. And uh, the animals were placed and blocked in the scene. So now we have a 360-degree view of the scene with the animals moving and talking and doing whatever they're doing. And then we decide how to physically photograph it shot after shot after shot. That part is kind of the easy part in terms of creatively we get whatever we want. We make uh, avid dailies from that and we're able to cut it together. But what has to happen is every time you move a plant or a tree or another object, which is also part of the live action workflow, is when you shoot a take in a real scene, you might move the painting behind somebody, the tray, the th- whatever the table is, chair. You, you may move everything to make or compose a shot appropriately and so when you do a live action version of a CG film, pretty much every shot you're doing something that is not you know, uh, adhering to the strictness of how the set was built and where every tree and rock is. So th- what has to happen is it has to be recorded in some way so that that information that we're shooting and everything we're altering goes down the pipeline to uh, uh, MPC and Adam. And, and Ben and Adam work together to create a tool that we could just shoot you know, with sort of reckless abandon, yet it, everything that we're doing is recorded faithfully for down the line. Is that a fair assessment, you think, Ben what, and Adam, what yeah, I just said? this is Ben, <laughs> virtual production supervisor. A lot of the work that Adam and I did early on was to make sure that it, it's great to put these tools in the hands of the filmmakers who maybe aren't so concerned about all the technicalities and the details, but it's all for naught if we don't pass all that information into post-production for all the visual effects artists that's in a pristine condition. So they know exactly what happened and why it happened. And they have really clean data that recreates that moment. So like Rob said, if they decide to move a tree, then it can be understood what specific tree that was, where it carries through in the visual effects pipeline and where it moved from one shot to the next so that you can have this sense of continuity. And so The team at MPC really put a lot of of remarkable work into making sure that that asset tracking system that allowed John and Rob and Caleb to have anything that they wanted on set brought in, but also carry it through faithfully into post-production so that they knew exactly what had happened throughout the process. So it wasn't just a creative guidance. It was a full technical execution right into visual effects. And Adam can probably speak more to that. Let's just clarify, though, again, for the listener, when we're talking about the set, you designed Africa, basically, in the computer, and you had access to a fully CG environment that you created with trees and 
Go ahead, Rob. Yes, exactly. Uh, James Chinlin created in his art department what the set would be, what the mountains would look like, how many trees are there, if there's a stream or waterfall, and created that. And, and literally, it's like miles of Africa that we would then pick and choose uh, where we wanted to film in that. But it's created, you know, essentially created a game, which was, you know, go travel to Africa and go find the place that you want to shoot at. And that got brought onto our stage, which is basically a big, giant black room with a bunch of sensors and, and equipment in it um, and, and computers. So it's that's our stage every day. We would show up and it'd be the same exact place, but through the VR goggles and through the you know all the video screens we had, we would recreate Africa where all the animals were and things like that. So that's every day we showed up. That would be what we were looking. It's kind of a, it looks like a little bit like a video game. It's you know we didn't need to make it that much better than that for the purposes of of camera and lighting and things like that. So we were essentially really shooting a game. The only a point I wanted to bring up why so much work was done is a game engine in particular is not designed to do what we're doing. You play the game, and when the game is over, everything snaps back to zero, and you lose every bit of recording of it. So they have to, uh, Ben and Adam, had to basically defeat what the game does naturally, which is you play, and then it's over. And they needed to, they'll break that and create a production tool uh, so that we could change something. And that was part of the design for me is I want to change something on a shot-by-shot basis. That's what makes the photography look better. That's what makes the lighting look better because we don't want to keep the same light on a shot-by-shot basis. We may want to move it to enhance the particular scene. And that is also a live-action thing that we, when we shoot on a real stage or a real location, you might shoot a scene that might take a day to photograph and every minute the sun's changing and you take advantage of it as a cameraman and only film the portions that you like in the particular light and do the reverses and the various things at different time to optimize how great it looks. Uh, But there's no real lighting continuity in terms of what you could do on a computer. So we're defeating everything the computer gives you, which is perfection, and we want the imperfection of a live-action shoot. And then it has to be turned over to these guys to actually now record every bit of imperfection that we work so hard to get and then be able to, to keep it and use it as needed for the rest of the movie. So this notion of likening it to a game, you used the Vive virtual reality headset so that they could see the set. So we could see the set. Um, And then you used uh, Unity, a real-time gaming engine. But um, Ben, maybe you'd like to start by explaining the tool set and what you had to put together in order to develop the system. Sure. Uh, And then, you know, Adam, jump in whenever. I mean, both of us started at the very beginning uh, with, with Rob in a meeting at John's office. And talked about, you know, okay, it's a blank slate. What would we do if we could do anything that would serve this film the best? And John kind of laid down the law and said, it needs to feel like a different medium. It can't feel like we're just remaking an animated picture again. It's got to feel like like we're bringing something else to it. And so to capture all those nuances that Rob just talked about from a live action standpoint, we said, okay, well, we've got to bend a game engine to sort of suit our will. We've got to toss out a lot of the older legacy technology that became so cumbersome and essentially rewrite a lot of that with all of the controls and, and sort of natural processes and way of working that, that I think John and Rob and Caleb and, and James were all looking for. So, we started out testing out all the game engines that were out there and, and we settled on unity in this particular case because it was the most versatile and gave us the fastest access to what we needed to change and we needed to change quite a bit most game engines 
our authoring environments, which is that you go in there as a programmer or as an artist and you create a game and then you compile it, which is kind of like baking it all down into a, you know, what you would double click on on your computer, an application or an executable. And in our particular case, because of all the functionality that we needed to be able to bring things in and take things out and do stuff, we were creating a hybrid environment where it needed to run like an application, but it needed to also be the authoring environment that we could work in. So it involved us writing a whole lot of functionality into the game engine authoring software so that it would act like it was a game that you were playing that was live, but it would still act like it was an authoring environment at the same time. And so you could have all the functionality of both worlds, which, you know, a lot of people kind of scratched their heads at when we said, that's what we're going to do. A lot of people from the games industry were like, wait, you're doing what? And so you're doing what was kind of a constant refrain, <laughs> I think, throughout the entire process. And so we needed to write a lot of functionality like timelines and, you know, you needed to be able to sequence events and, and bring actors in at different times. And, and then we also realized that we didn't just need to record where the camera was and what it did. We needed to record every piece of equipment and how it moved up to the camera. So if you put a camera on top of a, you know, a remote camera head with pan and tilt wheels, and then you put that on top of a crane, and then you put the crane on top of the dolly, on a live action movie set, uh, all you care about is the end result. Where did the camera move? But when you're going to start doing the things that we were doing, you needed to record all of those things individually so that you could recreate everything perfectly. And then if Rob said, hey, everything was great about take seven, but we want to go back and just reoperate the camera on top of that, you had to have a recording of literally everything that changed. And so between the team at MPC and at Magnopus, we put a lot of work into being able to record all that data pristinely, cleanly, time code synced, because nothing could drift even by a millisecond or a frame, and and have all that so that we had the flexibility to feed it into visual effects later on and use any piece of it that you wanted to use. And uh, I think, you know, Adam should probably speak about, you know, the process of getting things into the engine from the virtual art department and then getting them out of the engine into the uh, post-production process. I think that's that was a, right. a whole machine by itself. Yeah, I, I want to jump in and do a little sort of third angle on all of this. Um, this is Adam. It's interesting, Ben and Rob, because I think it was June 2016, where I think I went to Ben's office in downtown LA because I was learning about game engines that summer. And it would have been June 2017, we started shooting. So it was really like, you know, all this, like when Ben's emphasizing, oh, you guys are doing things, then game companies are saying, you know, what, what are you trying to do exactly? I mean, it really was within a year that we were, went from research to shooting. And so... You could say that, you know, doing Lion King was really with prototype software because it was a first time of doing something that the whys really came out of Rob and John, you know, talking about how they wanted to work. And at first, the game engine didn't even necessarily make sense. And the, the term game and game engine comes up a lot when people ask us about Lion King. But you know, in one sense, you, you could have done it without one. But actually, it proved that game engines were really providing us with something that no other software was quite able to do yet. And that was this multiplayer environment where multiple computers running the software could be used by different people all at the same time. And we take that for granted in game playing. But when you think about, you know, onset environments, that's really, really new. And then a big thing I think that's important to people like Rob and Caleb is how can I make a decision? Um, how can I know I've got a shot? And 
we had to figure out how to give them live depth of field and live lighting changes and live set changes. And so, yeah, you think of it as sort of three steps to that. Like, how do you prepare the stuff before you start shooting? What do you record live while you shoot? And then how do you make true on the promise that you've recorded that and that they'll see those choices um, downstream when everything's being made realistic and photorealistic by the you know hundreds of people at MPC in, in London and Bangalore. So it was pretty scary, I got to say, at first to go from roundtable meetings in LA to shoots within a year. And I think what's really interesting is one of the things, and Rob, you can correct me if, if I don't have this right, but I think on Jungle Book, which we all worked on together, because that was, you know, kind of, there was this attempt to get a lot of things in camera with motion capture and so forth. There became this workflow, which I think Rob started back on Avatar, which was like, don't just previs shots, but really make pieces of scenes. And so the way our team would prepare the animation or the sets was not just to, you know, oh, here's a shot and we're going to go shoot a shot, but here's a scene, here's a beat of action. It could be, I don't know, less than a, uh, you know, a couple of seconds or up to maybe half a minute long. Some of them were quite large and it might be a conversation or a piece of dramatic action. And let's give it to Rob and Caleb and prepare it in such a way that they can load all of it in and then start covering it the way they would do. And then Ben's team and my team on the stage would put the two things together, you know, all this preparation and all the files coming in and then his team attaching all the camera gear and figuring out how to cover it. And we would work together to do the recordings. So it's important to keep in mind when we talk about sort of the versatility in the gaming aspect of it all, that there were very specific functionality we wanted to give Rob and Caleb as they shoot things. It's all designed with a, you know, a, a live action mentality and to make sure it felt, you know, loosely comfortable. And most of those fundamentals were working for them. So because the shoot was in Playa Vista, what were you recording on? And then how are you bringing the material to MPC, your visual effects company, where the final images were being created for the production? We have a, you know, really robust system in-house already for tracking hundreds of thousands of items within a scene. You know, every plant and rock and piece of terrain and the animals and the camera and everything. So we kind of had a foundation of how we store information. What we had to figure out was, as Rob was saying, you know, when a game is active and things are changing inside a game, it's not the game's nature to understand that that's something you want to save. You know, right? Normally you only save in a game context. Um, you know, did I live or die? Did I make it to the next level? If not, start again. Here it was like everything the user did was of interest and need to be recorded. And so we figured out a way to create this sort of take system in our virtual production tools. It's like, oh, this is a take, just like on set. What constitutes a take? It's the fact that we loaded in a set, things were tuned to the camera angle, animation may have been retimed or adjusted, and now a brand new camera was um, laid down with 
lighting appropriate to that camera. So that's what a take is. So you bottle that up, store that, and you move on to the next setup and you decide, or the next take, sorry, you can, you know, have another crack at the camera or what have you. You know, if I to chime in and add on that, it doesn't seem very sexy or exciting, but I would say almost half of the effort of all of the engineers that worked on this project was put into just recording all of that data reliably, consistently in sync with each other across all these different computers and all these different pieces of hardware. Because, you know, Rob or Caleb would come in and say, hey, we want to do this with a drone helicopter. And then you'd be like, okay, well, you know, the mechatronics engineering team is going to build a rig that mounts on top of the helicopter that gets witnessed by active tracking cameras in the ceiling that then feeds into a solver that then moves across the network to another computer that then broadcasts it to everything else that then sends it to the control room. And the fact that you would have like 50 or 60 different technical pieces of equipment all communicating in sync and you were getting that down to the millisecond, if Rob or Caleb were operating the camera and Caleb would go, it feels rubbery. Well, rubbery means it's two milliseconds slower than he thinks it should be. And getting all of that data in sync was probably half of the entire effort of the software uh, development was this constant just almost psychopathic. Is that why you guys rolled your eyes every time I said I want to use a drone? <laughs> every, it would, every time anybody wanted to use anything, it was like an, okay, we need to go through. A lot of times we would take a piece of equipment that they gave us and we would say, the circuitry inside this equipment is not good enough for what they want to do to it. And we'd have to go in and start replacing pieces of the circuit board to get higher performance out of it so that it would, it would react as quickly because if for it to feel live action, there could be almost no delay or no latency. And when all of those things are happening at the same time, we wrote some pretty insane stuff to manage that data flow and get it all recorded safely. And, you know, when Adam said, he, you know, he re recollected that it was about a year from roundtable discussions about what should we do to here we are on the stage doing it. I think we got greenlit to even start development in like October. And then almost immediately we were like, okay, we're starting to see the first, you know, the first sunshine here. We're starting to see promising results. And then the word came in that we were going to do D23. And everybody kind of went, hang on a second. We haven't even successfully shot a single shot yet. And now I think it was like three or four weeks later, we wanted to shoot all the material for the D23 trailer. And we had no stage. We had no proper equipment. We hadn't successfully recorded a take yet. And so I think it was less than five months because I think it was February 27th that we actually shot the D23 material. And we had only gotten green light in late October. So in less than five months, we threw together all the equipment that we had. I mean, we were like hot glue gunning and, and duct taping equipment together and running wires and cables. And we threw it all into one room and we just threw everybody in there with the data. And we just said, okay, let's try to shoot an entire trailer right now. And um, everybody really enjoyed working with each other at that moment in time. And I was actually at that D23 in 2017 oh, when really? you showed that clip. And that was the, uh, the opening on Pride Rock that you showed. Yeah. Well, I remember when we were doing this at D23, and I didn't really fully understand what the problems were. Um, they couldn't turn off the game because if they turned off the game, they'd lose every piece of information that we moved and changed and altered. So I kept on saying, just turn it off and we'll just reset this thing. And they're like guarding like it's like a state secret that we can't actually turn it off. We have to leave it running and it would lose performance over time. It's like, 
just reboot the thing, for God's sakes. And it would be like, uh, no, God's sakes, because you lose everything you did. Yeah, because we would have to, like, Rob would be like, oh, just reboot it, and we'll bring it back up again. I'm like, Rob, we're going to have to reposition all the trees, all the animals, all the grass, all the sun, all the light, everything. Like, if we turn it off, we lose everything we're doing. So keep going. We're going to record all this, and we'll pull it all out. And that's out. what they were trying to fix for the physical shoot, but I, I didn't really grasp that until uh, I think it, we did turn it off and everything was lost. This was one of those rare cases where not only did Rob not grasp it, but the people who were operating the equipment didn't grasp it either. <laughs> yeah, somebody told me later, we couldn't tell you we couldn't turn it off. <laughs> <laughs> so how much data was recorded for the production? Oh my God, it's millions and millions. Well, okay. we... We couldn't keep track of it all because we were constantly having to cycle through it. We were filling up server after server, and then we'd periodically go back and we'd have these little meetings where we'd be like, hey, can we flush all of this work now? Have we got it? Has it been transferred out appropriately? And and it was this, you know, there's always this big concern because we'd fill up servers full of data and we were filling up racks in machine rooms. Yeah, this is the whole challenge with these things. I mean, we're trying to make a movie and give our team the ability to just work right be creative but this work this virtual production stuff this new stuff i mean you're not only bending game engines to do things they don't inherently want to do or naturally want to do and not just developing brand new software but yeah you're engineering entirely new things so you're not just kind of like combining some tech and and popping on a stage you're building stuff from whole cloth from scratch you're inventing and to be responsive to Rob and Caleb as they're shooting in addition to that, right? Like to, to hear week on week, you know, how is this working or not working? Um, you know, we never stopped writing the software till the last week, I think. And we never really, I don't think, achieved everything we hoped to because, you know, what we really want to do in, in future productions and are getting better at now is a more fluid adaptation of the action. I mean, I think this is something Rob can talk about a fair bit that, you know, when you're shooting, it's a relationship between the set, the action and the camera, and they all need to be plastic and somewhat directable. Well, that's pretty hard to do when you have to pre-animate all your action with animators and, and bring that all into the stage. It's, it's hardly ever exactly what you want it to be. So I think that Lion King represents an achievement of a film alongside an R&D project, if you will, that delivered a pretty cool prototype. And, and we make it very difficult on people who have to program and do all this stuff because true spontaneity is what gives it this live approach. It's like, oh, I got a great idea. Let's put the uh, put that rock on a slider and we'll move it out of the way as the camera goes by and move it back in. It sounds, and for us, we have to be in that moment because that solves a particular creative problem. But then somebody has to figure out how to do all that. And, and somebody has to figure out where when it moved, that it moved. And it wasn't supposed to, but yet we're doing it anyway. And we do the same thing with the uh, action that Andy would set up is it might have worked great for a master scene but then when you cut to the close-up one of the characters blocks the other character so we would move them on sliders so it wasn't just the animation track laid down it was the animation track laid down on top of whatever else we were screwing around with to make it spontaneous to make the shot feel correct but we're changing things all the time and and it's not inconsequential to make all that seem fluid and not break the moment and say well you can't do that here's how you have to set it up it's like so what was have to be continually rewritten is us basically really challenging the system by moving things all the time at the spur of the moment without a hesitation built into it because otherwise we break the moment 
it would break, and just like you would on a live action set. You can't, you know, the actor wants to do something, you can't just say, well, two hours later you can try it because it wouldn't work. So um, we made it really hard on, on them because they're writing it and trying to keep up with us as we're making a movie. And we have a schedule that we have to keep and it has a pretty long back end to rendering and all the various things that Adam could talk about. But And we were continually changing our minds and doing things that you want to achieve because that's what makes a better movie is continually changing your mind not knowing exactly what you're going to do so let me try it three different ways and then record all of it and then i'll pick it later is the so we made it pretty difficult i think it was very much like a live action set though like if you've ever been on a complex live action set with special effects and and grip department and camera department everybody's like tearing things apart and building crazy stuff and then you look at what's going on and then you look through the camera it all makes sense but if you just stand back and look at the stage it's madness and in a sense we were doing that but we also had this software layer where there were software engineers writing software, sometimes in between takes. Like Rob would say, well, I want to do this thing. And they were like, well, it doesn't do that right now. And it's like, great, well, how fast can you do that? And they'd be like, I don't know, maybe like 30 minutes. And it's like, great, well, we're going to lunch. And when we come back, we'll have a software update. And then it'll do that. And then you would have a mechatronics engineer, which is like a mechanical, electrical engineer. You'd have a grip department working with them. You'd have 3D printers cranking out new pieces of equipment and then you'd have the software team all pushing code onto the stage, not from the comfort of a calendar or a schedule, but from the comfort of a Caleb being upset with you that he's not shooting already. And so it was just like a live action movie set with unsuspecting victims who had no idea what they were in for. But somehow it got like a quantum leap better than even what we did on Jungle Book. Something about the tech anim and the way the animals moved and how fluid it was and how the hair responded to light. I mean, it's something, it, it didn't just get a little bit better, it got like a lot better. As good as Jungle Book is, this is still, you know, when we saw some of these shots come back, it was like something happened between Jungle Book and now at MPC to make it look the way it looked because it, it, it was pretty sensational looking. This is maybe a good question is that one of the the theories that we had at the very beginning of this was that on previous movies we had this problem where it's like say you give a visual effects supervisor 10 days to do a thing then in that 10 days they have to figure out what the thing is and then they have to do the thing and so in the past sometimes figuring out what the thing is is like eight of the 10 days and then you got two days to do the actual thing because you spent eight days trying to figure out what is the thing it's not what they said at the beginning or they weren't sure what it was and so we had to figure it out one of the theories going into Lion King was that if we put the tools in the hands of the filmmakers and we get us, you know, people below the line out of the way and they can show us what they want, then A, their hand was on it. Their fingerprints are all over it. They own that creatively. And so those of us who have to, you know, take those eight days out of our 10 days and figure out what it is that they wanted us to do, in theory, we've got our 10 days back now because they've handed us a description of what they want and we have the data for it and we and it went through editorial already and so i guess i would put it to adam because he would know more than anybody here do you feel like the virtual production process and the filmmakers like taking the game engine material through the editorial and essentially being able to hash out their gags before they really spun up the war machine on visual effects do you think that that gave the artists more time to focus on the quality of the work rather than the concept of the work I would say Lion King's a really interesting and unique case because one, they knew pretty well what their story was, right? So we weren't going to get 11th hour curveballs on the structure of the film. Two, yes, the virtual production was decisions made by a director, a DP, 
a production designer. So like you say, rather than using days at MPC getting to, is this the shot you want or do these shots work together? You had some pretty firm decisions there. And then the third bit I think is what Rob's talking about, which is we did refactor a lot of lessons from Jungle Book in that year and a half or so between the two movies where the whole of the Technicolor, you know, studio was just updating lots of stuff. And we did learn a lot from Jungle Book. So not just what's hard and how to make it easier, but, you know, my own personal issues with, you know, how to make something really look natural and outdoors, for example. And that's something that with Jungle Book, we had to mesh, you know, on set stage lighting and still make it look outside. Here we had a wide open field. It was just up to us. So we could really focus on what would make the most realistic outdoor looking CG and test on that in pre-production. So I think you just had a really great alignment of a project that knew what it was, a really cool way to let the live action filmmakers author something, and then, you know, a studio that was just, you know, raring to go on it. Rob, could you talk about where was editorial in this? Where was previs? I mean, are, are these roles changing? And Yeah, I think that the pure definition of them, uh, previs has a connotation that it's somebody else doing it and, and trying to flesh out an idea that's not really the filmmaker's point of view, but it's a somebody tackling a problem. Uh, when we were doing Avatar, Jim coined it out, we're not prevising, we're visualizing the movie. So we're actually just shooting the film. And so to call it previs kind of alters that a bit as if it's kind of a half-baked idea. This is a, more of a fully-baked idea. And then editorial, uh, a lot of times when we were shooting, uh, because you can, you have editorial on the set with you as you're devising the scene and then, again, reacting to this spontaneity of, oh, I didn't know it was going to have that kind of rhythm when we cut it. Now I can shoot at this other shot that would enhance that rhythm where you wouldn't have done that because you would have shot it all two days later. They'd say, yeah, everything looks fine or doesn't look fine or we need another close-up. But you could, again, react to live input happening simultaneously to what you're doing. So editorial was there essentially at the very beginning of every scene. And also what helps when we're shooting too, which was I, I thought worked pretty well, is that the scenes that we would get we sometimes would add music and sound effects to them. So as we're shooting them, we have kind of the old-fashioned silent days when the music would actually inspire, you know, the the action and the and the and the camera work too. So editorial would prepare that. We'd have like a, a rough in where with uh, you know generic cameras just to have something and say, okay, yeah, let's we use this kind of music for this moment. That would go to the stage, and every angle that we picked, we'd have the mood music of the scene and the sound effects and the dialogue dialogue and all that to make an even further enhancement. So it's it's, it's not really previs because that connotes that we're doing it before we visualized it. We're visualizing it as we're doing it. And editorial is right there, basically cutting to camera. And we needed to do this on this particular project or any project like this, because you can't just do the whole movie and then say, okay, now that we have the whole movie, turn it over to get rendered. This is like you have to be turning over scenes all along the schedule to make the schedule. So the voice actor's had already recorded their... In, in many cases, they've already recorded them or they're in the process of re-recording stand-in voices or stand-in performances. So it's a, a totally evolving scenario where the rule book is now off. You're 
pre-producing, producing, post-producing all at the same time every day. And as you're shooting a scene, uh, John may may halt the process because we're going to bring two actors in and do what they call black box theater, which is set up with a bunch of live action cameras. No real motion capture, but cameras that are just aimed at the actors to be spontaneous, to also improv a scene and do whatever and take advantage of that magic that happens when two actors rub against each other. And then the next day we would the editorial would cut that in to the previously animated scene and it would change the way we would photograph it because now it's a funnier line. We'd be in on a close-up and things like that. So it was so totally evolving every moment and that's where the spontaneity of it is. And there's another point I want to bring up about you know the difference between Jungle Book and this is that once we had the ability through NPC's work to make something look photo real, then make it look really great then now the sun wants to be in this position and the camera wants to be here to make a better-looking David Lean-esque scene. Uh, it's not good enough. The magic trick isn't good enough to say, yes, we created something that looks photoreal. It's now that it's photoreal, make it look really great and use really sophisticated cinematography techniques and directing techniques and blocking because we now can achieve it. We now have this, this magic carpet to go into something that makes it absolutely look real to the eye. Well, now we're two years out from when you started this process. As it's developing, what were the pain points at the time and have they been solved already or are there areas of virtual production that you believe can continue to be improved upon? Well, it could always be improved upon because you're continually demanding more of it. The more you get, the more you want. And so it will never totally catch up. Just like a film it's in general, all of a sudden digital cameras come out, then the chips get better, and then the lenses get better, and then the, the camera mounts get better. And you, you never really are satisfied with what you have in front of you. You're always wanting the next thing. It's like, well, now I've already done this. How could I make it more interesting than that? So the pain points were always uh, we were basically patching up software and equipment and things as we were shooting it. And sometimes we made temporary fixes. And then you say, okay, well, now I want to go back and do it again. It's like, well, it was so temporarily put together, kind of like the original thing where we can't turn the game off because we'll lose everything. You know, it was, it was almost like that. So at the beginning, it took a while to get all these things ironed out so we could successfully record, change our minds, go back and then shoot it again and change our minds again and record all the various things. Once that happened, we had a little more steady ground to work on. But it's not easy. But once the mechanics and the tools that MPC built that we've now become quite accustomed with, now we can't shoot without them because we know how to spawn a camera. We know how to grab a thing. We know how to get a measuring device. We know how to plant flags and dollies. And, and now it becomes part of our vocabulary of, sh of virtual shooting. You can't really not have that. And then now you say, well, now that I got all that, I want to do the next thing and I want to do the next thing. And what it ultimately does is puts more and more control in the hands of the person person who's the filmmaker and less in, in the hands of the operator. And so, you know, Caleb could then move the camera anywhere he wants and spawn a dolly. And the more we make it easy for him to do or easy for me to do or easy for John Favreau to do or Adam or, or, or Ben or whatever, you continually update the tool set to just do more and more and more and more. And then it's not good enough to just imitate what live action is. Now, what would we do if we could do it better 
in live action. Uh, to me, it's not a pain point because I'm not the one who's... Uh, mm -hmm. I, I go to lunch and say, you're going to fix it while I'm at lunch, right? And yeah. somebody is sweating it out. So for me, it's it's. Uh, I don't have quite the same perspective as these guys do. But there's a lot of stuff that like happened on the film. You know, all the things that Rob's talking about at the very beginning, yeah, they were pain points. By the end of the movie, it was like they were just button clicks. Everything was, you know, wired out so that you could show up on the stage and, you know, click, click, and now you're back at Pride Rock and ready to shoot. Things got pretty reliable, but the appetites change, as you pointed out. Like at the very beginning, Caleb was like, yeah, I'm not so much into the VR thing. I'm not going to be sticking my head in that thing and, and doing it. And then, you know, a week later, he's in VR and he's totally comfortable. And he's saying, I need to fly faster. And you're like, sure. Well, you're going 100 miles an hour now. How fast do you want to fly? He's like, well, it takes too long to get from Pride Rock to the Shadowlands. So make it 400 miles an hour. And you're like, okay. So you're upgrading software constantly because as people's comfort level with the technology grows, then so does their appetite for destruction. And so there are a million things that we can continue to improve. And once we've got everything perfect, then they'll still complain about the intelligence of the artificially intelligent actors that we've created that are photoreal. I mean, like something like that will always be the next horizon. Everything you see exist together in a delicate balance. While others search for what they can take, a true king searches for what he can give. Technology has now increased. Just at SIGGRAPH, there is a headset that now track your eyeballs. So you could be in a motion capture environment, have the VR headset on, and it knows where you're looking. So that portion of your performance can be kept. You're in a real world, and when you gaze over here and you look over here, you're really looking in those particular areas and something is tracking you. So you could later go back and re-record it. But that part makes it really interesting because then, again, the live-action approach is something happens and I intuitively respond to it. So if I'm a, you know, a, a great actor and I see something that the other actor is doing, I get to now alter my performance specifically because of what I just saw, as opposed to I'm reading a script in a room by myself without any other input. So the movies just will get better and better and better because we will take advantage of it. Unfortunately, equipment as soon as a new piece of gear comes out, like I just went to SIGGRAPH and I saw how fast the computers are now and they have eight graphic cards in them. And so now you can get pretty photorealistic lighting in almost real time or real time. Now you have to incorporate that in. My, I mean, my next thing, and I've talked to these guys about, is doing this interactive lighting that I couldn't quite do to the degree that I liked on even on Lion King because now I can move the thing around and I could see, I could like literally take a card and move it and then see what the result is on a high definition monitor and, and it'll look pretty much like that when we go to render it. Before we have to kind of fake it and say, yeah, we know because I have experience as a cameraman, obviously Caleb has tremendous experience with cameraman. If I put the light here, I can imagine what it's really going to be doing and I know the angle, but I don't see it. You know, on a live action set, you see it here now with just the advances of the last year, you'll be able to do that and then light like Caleb or Bob Richardson or whatever, how they work on a live action set. So do you see a scenario where what you're recording on set will actually be the final images? And if so, how far off do you think that is? Yes. Well, if you were going to do The Lion King with cars, we'd be there today. Yes. <laughs> yes, in fact, I mean, because you could shoot. Furry creatures are really hard to light yeah. and render photorealistically and all that organic yeah. matter. But if you were going to do Tron. But it's already happening. It's already happening. People are running Game Engine 
in camera on set right now. And landscapes and things like that uh, are, are, you know, are easier to do because they are easy to recreate. But the fur is still, I think, a, a little bit away. But for the most part, and now with the with the whole idea of a video wall attached to a game engine camera, you can now do in-camera composites in real time and with a, with a computer that has eight graphics cards in and be able to do uh, real-time ray tracing, you're basically shooting the finished product on the day and you can react spontaneously to that and change your mind and change your camera angle and change you know do a zoom in do a push in a dolly and shoot it live you don't even have to shoot a green screen anymore you can shoot it uh with this particular you know manner of, of working so that'll pretty much start taking over a portion of the filmmaking chore is everybody will spend a couple of weeks on a on a vr stage with a video wall and complete scenes that were much more difficult to do or would take too much time or money on location as soon as the producer decides that you can save some money by staying in la for two weeks instead of going to Africa to film this particular short scene, then it's going to take over and it's going to, it's going to become part of the filmmaking process. I think that's a, that's a really good point because what we're seeing at Technicolor, all of our companies that work on, you know, streaming content series and big budget films and, you know, all, all manner of project is that the appetite obviously for content is going through the roof implies more created content right like like rob just said maybe it's a budget saving thing like you have a scene that you got to shoot in a faraway place you can't go there so this is a way to do it but also i think what we're going to see is more and more and more filmmakers who represent the ambition to do work that is kind of beyond their experience you know more tv series more films where they really don't have any experience with visual effects and it becomes very difficult for them to know how to shoot and then how to finish. So I think what we're seeing now and what we're working out in our sort of labs in the back room is how do we take this cool real-time technology and these virtual production ideas, which for me, you can boil it down to how do you, you know, build a bridge to live action people with, with computer graphics. We're going to try to build that bridge at every phase of production and make the decision-making process easier and faster. So later on, when you're further down in post-production and you're starting to see how the scenes are really coming together, on Lion King, sometimes we would still shoot something back to Rob and he would reshoot the camera because you know it needed to now respond to what had evolved. So our job is going to be, over time, make this affordable, make it something that helps all kinds of new filmmakers participate in this kind of work. Do you see the job of these artists changing or new roles evolving or developing? No, I think I always go back to, uh, we've had 100 years of filmmaking experience and we've never improved the process. It, it just can't be done because that's the process it needs to create this sort of work. So we're just now making it accessible for other people. So like the thing I was just describing, if you choose the camera angle, you choose the move, you choose the light, you choose the lens, you're the cameraman. So no matter how you shake it, you could have been called a digital artist or a CG lighter, but at some point you're the cameraman. And what separates you from another cameraman is how good you are at it. So the role becomes the same. If you're uh, an animation director, but you're directing in real time with real input, you're a director. Forget animation director. You're, you're now directing and what separates you from anybody else. So the roles are kind of identical. Somebody physically has to light it. Somebody physically has to pull focus. Somebody physically has to do those things. Those roles now become more accessible uh, to people, but I don't think they change. I think they're the same. It's easy for Rob to say that, though, because he's one of the few people
people who's practically a member of every single union and guild in Hollywood. <laughs> Most filmmakers don't have that breadth of experience, but I think these tools enable that in the future so that nobody has to fit into a specific discipline. They can pick up the tools. I mean, you just think about it like what Rob basically just said, which was if it costs $200,000 a day to have a fully functioning movie set with all the equipment, well, imagine you can get that for free in your mom's basement with VR and you can take any young aspiring filmmaker, throw them onto a movie set and say, here's all the ingredients for success. Just bring your ideas and you can operate any of this equipment. Now what would happen? And, and that's a pretty cool transformation where people no longer feel like they have to fit into a specific discipline. Like, oh, I only know how to do this thing or I only know how to do that thing. You're like, I have a story to tell. These are the tools at my disposal and I can use any of them that I choose. Rob, I wanted to ask you a question. Now that films can be made in this new way, but in this case, the final product is photoreal, but fully computer generated. A lot of people are talking about and asking this question. Do you consider it an animated movie? How do you answer that question? I, personally, I don't consider it an animated movie because the term animation has a connotation that is different than what we're trying to achieve. Our, and in this particular movie, and there's a controversial discussion, is that we set out to make a live-action film. It looks live-action. It is responding to the intuitive nature of filmmakers who don't have to do this long process of laying out and animating. So to me, it was intended to be a live-action movie. We used live-action filmmakers to make it, including Caleb and myself and John and the live-action editors. They're not animation editors. They're, you know, all that. Adam is a, a you know, live-action visual effects supervisor, as I am, and Ben is as well. So it's not just a CG sort of animation group. And also for me, and, and this will be controversial as well, is the performance and all that is done by animators and live action and blocking by live action directors. But the rest of the scene, the how spectacular the landscapes look and how the wind responsive, that's not really animation in a classic sense. So when you put the label of animation on it, like a Pixar movie, where everything has this kind of fluid but not real quality to it, as brilliant as it is, that's what I consider an animated movie. This one is only a portion of it is the animated part. The rest of it is as if we shot it like a visual effect or a real movie where that's the landscape, that's the light that behaves very naturally. It's simulated sunlight, so it's actually doing what real sunlight does. So there's no animation to that. And Adam should correct me if I'm wrong here. My impression is, as brilliant as the animation is, and it really is, I thought that Andy and his team did a spectacular spectacular job. It didn't become live action until the tech animation happened, till the way the muscles moved and the way when the animal would take a breath. It wasn't, in my view, from the previous versions, animated in, but because the rigs were so expertly built that when you move the muscle, it bulged a particular muscle group, and then the light that hit that fur and the veins, all of a sudden now it's real. It wasn't animated anymore. Now it's a living, breathing item. So I think that it's too simplistic to call it that. And also our intention was that it was not an animated movie, that it was actually a live-action-looking film. And to the audience, they don't. all movies are fake. They're, nothing's real about a movie anyway. The final result is the final result. It looks like you shot it on a real place, but it was a set. That you look like the, the people lived in their clothes, but they're not. Their costumes, you know, all those things. This is no less artificial than that. And so I think, at some point, no one really cares how it was made. Does it look like a real movie? That's what I think it is. So that's what we called it. Ben, Adam, any additional thoughts on that? 
I think in the Hollywood industry, we look at things as how they're made, and we use terms to describe how they're made. But in the rest of the world, that's not the way they see the movie. They have associated that term with how they perceive it. And this is a very complicated and political issue, so I asked an eight-year-old. I was like, hey, here's these two Disney movies. One is the one from the 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s that we know from cell-style animation. And the other one is the live-action you know, remake, which is, of course, mostly visual effects and computer-generated imagery. And so I tried to explain all this to my 8-year-old daughter, and she didn't get any of it. And I said, all right, well, which one of these two movies do you want to watch? And she said, uh, I've already seen the animated one, so I want to see the real one. So her terms are real and animated because it's how it looks to her that determines the term. Because even for those of us who make movies, using the term animated implies that nobody else did anything. When in fact, you know, animators are probably uh, not the largest group of people making a movie these days, even when it is animated. You've got so many other people involved in the process who aren't animators. So to call it an animated movie these days is a little bit quirky. This gorge is where all lions come to find their roar. All lions? Even my dad? Even Mufasa came here when he was your age. Refused to leave until his roar could be heard above the rim. All the way up there? That's when you know you found it. With a little practice, you'll never be called a cub again. Were there processes that you developed that you didn't use for the movie? Oh, there's tons of stuff. I mean, we did a lot of things that we decided, okay, this either doesn't work or this works too well or it's just not needed. I mean, one of the things was John and Rob and Caleb would form an aerial unit and John would be the helicopter pilot flying around in VR and he'd have Caleb and Rob parented to him as though they were riding in the back of the helicopter. And this is how we shot some of the aerial shots in the film. And we went, oh, well, John's maybe flying a little unrealistically because he doesn't actually have the feeling of flying. So we uh, took a D-Box chair from a 4D movie theater and we modified it and fed it into the game engine live and we put actual helicopter and uh, you know thrust and, and uh, the yoke and control mounted onto the chair. So you can sit on the chair and you literally are flying a helicopter and the chair's moving so you feel like, oh, I banged too fast there or stuff like that. We, we came up with a lot of gags like that and, and sometimes it was like, okay, well, that's, that's over kill we don't need to do that every time but well we wanted to explore this we never really used it and we would use it if like somebody like bob richardson was shooting because he relies on sitting on the crane and the inertia of the crane moving informs his operating he cradles the camera and he has a very intuitive kind of quality about it but once you disembody him from the crane he has to wait for his eyesight to say oh we, we must have moved i must start to backpan now so we want to like make it very comfortable for somebody like him who wants this kind of visceral quality so if you had the chair and it lurched forward when you started to move you would feel it and be able to operate accordingly and feel very comfortable shooting something because what, what, what's hard uh, and you have to get used to it and not everybody gets used to it in vr is that you were moving without any inertial feeling whatsoever so you could get sick very easily because your brain's thinking you're traveling but your body isn't also telling you that you know how you're moving in space so people do get sick and a lot of times people have to take the headset so i got used to it pretty well where flying around became not a big issue for me but for a lot of people they would have to sit down if we it was more the psychology of it you can get sick because the technology isn't good enough but in this particular case that wasn't a factor it was really just because you know you take the average human being and you say hey you can fly now go fly and do your job 
people get really uncomfortable with flying for a little while. But then after, you know, minutes or days, depending on how old the person is, usually everybody gets comfortable with flying once they have that power. But yeah, that that sense of being uncomfortable is something that you could overcome with haptics in the chair. And, and we did a lot of that. We, and the it thing would that, stop people from getting seasick, essentially, yeah. is that you, you, you know that your body's lurching forward. So your brain is understanding what, what you're saying. If the background's moving back and forth, you'll just, you'll, you will get seasick until you overcome it, until you intellectually. Overcome. We also did the thing where, like Rob talked about with eye tracking and a camera, we built a VR headset that had eye tracking in the headset and a camera pointed at your mouth. So if you wanted to play one of the characters in the, in the movie, then you became that animal. So you could become Simba. And then it was weird because you would not realize who you were until you looked down and saw Simba pause below you. And if you walked around on the stage, Simba's body would follow you perfectly and your head was Simba's head and the eye lines and the mouth if you talked Simba talked like we set up rigs like that in case we wanted to do live performances like that and it was pretty trippy because you could be a character in the movie and you know John could say hey look towards the camera now look at Nala and it was like it was all just happening without you having to translate it you were the character you just did what he said and it worked out Perfectly. And it's kind of interesting. You'd amazingly get used to it very quickly where you're looking at the camera, go take another two steps forward, go back. And you're like live directing a, a, an object that you, otherwise you could not or you, or you wouldn't. And you forget what you're doing and it becomes like, well, that becomes the perfectly natural way of, of, of blocking out the scene is having it live. And immediately and you start operating the camera and all of a sudden you're shooting a scene in a movie. And uh, so that part we developed, we didn't use as much as we probably would have on the next film. But uh, we would definitely take advantage of that and improve that because now you could really puppeteer that and be the character and see what the character sees. And it looks pretty natural. I mean, it wouldn't be the final, but it would be something that would block out a shot and a camera move very, very easily and timing, you know, the internal timing of an actor. Well, we tested out like artificial intelligence and voice control, because when you're a director on a movie set, like if you want to be that super user where there is no film crew but you, then you have to have somebody to talk to and say, you know, give me a 50 on a finder and then move that tree to the right two feet and then let's... um you know, oh, nope, I want a 75 on a finder. Well, those are all voice controls that a computer can understand. And so we actually test it and we can make the system respond to that. But we just thought people might get a little weirded out by computers going, okay, and then handing you a 50 on a finder. But the artificial intelligence that could power characters and the simulations, yeah, it starts to become very Star Trek holodecky. Rob, since you're a member of the American Society of Cinematographers as well as the Directors Guild, what are the lessons learned from this production that you would convey to a cinematographer or director? Well, for me, it's that it's not scary, that you don't avoid using this sort of technology because, well, I I don't do that. It's like you actually do do that, and you would enhance and improve your work by spending a couple of minutes figuring out how to light something, how to shoot something, what camera choices might be better without having the pressure of the day. And both as a director and as a cinematographer, at some point you have to deliver the goods within the hour pretty much. So all the experimentation has to be at a minimum. It's a little bit what Adam was saying, or Ben and Adam, if you have 10 days to do the work, but you to spend eight days figuring out what the work is, you only have two days to actually execute. The same thing happens on a set. You could experiment and, and soak up your, your time and then go, well, now I only have 20 minutes to, to perfect this shot. And, that, and that, that's unfortunate. So if you walked into the set prior to that and you used all of your 
directing skills and all your cinematography skills and the planning, you're still doing the same work. Now you're executing your best idea. You've thrown out the ones that don't work and now you're using the ones that do. So my quest would be uh, to educate people not to be afraid of the technology, that it doesn't replace you, it enhances you. Uh, And that people are afraid, well, now, you know, I've lost all the control. It's like, well, get the control back by doing it. Don't have now other people do it because you're afraid of it. And uh, so that's what my feeling is, is that it's beneficial to everyone and it makes you better at what you're doing. It's basically like rewriting your visual screenplay. And every time you rewrite, it gets better and better and better. Well, you kind of need to see it laid out first before it could go to the next level, to the next level, and the next level. And then it's pretty sophisticated work. You become more Stanley Kubrick-like than not by making your film four times. And then you're, what you're left with is a, is a pretty nice, you know, where somebody might be a genius could come up with it at the outset, like Orson Welles and Citizen Kane, or... You could become Orson Welles and Citizen Kane by trial and error. What's next for each of you? Uh, lunch, I think, uh, is what's <laughs> next. I mean, I mean, broader future. Uh, I don't know. There's a couple films. Um, one of the dangers of working on Lion King is everybody says, well, we don't have your kind of budget. It's like, well, I don't always have that kind of budget, you know. So I, I, there's a couple films that are that are, are smaller in scope than, than that, but more live action, interesting. And probably one of them would take advantage of everything we learned here in terms of planning a live action film. It's not going to be totally digitally created. Um, is take advantage of everything we've done to plan out the live action day. So when we shoot, we shoot very high end uh, decision making prior to actually showing up about what we're shooting, how we're shooting, how we're lighting and all that stuff. So that part's kind of exciting. And then we'll probably end up taking advantage of the video wall for a portion of it because of it's the be- literally at this point, moment in time, it's the best way of, of actually capturing some of the moments. From my perspective, I think less so about making a movie and more so for me on Lion King about putting filmmakers into a movie. I think the thing I'm most interested in now is putting the audience into the movie too. Because if you have this game engine powered world full of simulations and animation and characters and and you can start putting in intelligence to that so that the characters can respond to the people that are in it. We started doing that with tools and things in Lion King. I think for me, the next step would be to then say, well, why aren't we putting the audience inside the movie as well? And then what happens when the movie reacts to the audience is the audience becomes the director or as the audience becomes other characters in the film. So I think everything we're working on next in that line is expanding the borders of the theater to include people's imaginations in the audience. Well, thank you so much. And congratulations on Lion King. No, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.